And so from a business standpoint, that made more sense to me to bridge my creativity in the way that I want to vision the world and how capitalism actually works. Hello and welcome to Shopify Masters, the podcast powered by Shopify, your companion for starting and building a business. I'm Shwang Estershan. Before Maurice Harris was ever a business owner, he was an artist. His medium, flowers. Maurice spent years designing bespoke flower arrangements for high-profile companies and clients like Louis Vuitton, Group, Nike, Vogue, and much more. But he wanted to find a way to make his art more financially sustainable for himself and more accessible for people who loved his work. In 2019, Maurice opened Bloom & Plume, a coffee and flower shop just north of downtown Los Angeles. He's here today to talk about monetizing art and the joys and trade-offs of creating something truly beautiful. Maurice, thanks for joining us. Oh my gosh, it's so nice to be here. Your voice is ridiculously soothing. Thank you so much. That's so nice. Well, I do want to start off by, I guess, stating the obvious a bit. First off, flowers are perishable. They're delicate. It's a medium that's also time-consuming, but somehow that's also a part of the draw for you. So can you tell us why you were so attracted to flowers and why this business? Yeah, I think one of the things you also forgot, they're extremely dirty and disgusting. (laughs) It's the part of the business people often forget that like the muddy water that you end up with at the end of the week or like all the bacteria and all the schlepping, those are the parts that end up taking a lot of your time more than the pretty parts. I was drawn to flowers because I think we're drawn to things that we see and things that we know and things that we're exposed to. My grandmother was a florist and she mostly worked with artificial flowers And she was a milliner. She made church lady hats. And she was really in her prime when I was a little kid. And I would just love to watch her create. And I think it was the creation that really, really was attractive to me. And just like she could take a bunch of things and turn it into magic. And that was something that I was really drawn to as a kid. And so as an adult, flowers, I think, can be very intimidating, especially fresh flowers, because they are perishable, but people, you know, love the medium. Access to the flower market in Los Angeles is relatively easy. That is how I was able to get into the industry, because I could pay two bucks to go into the market and shop like a wholesaler. And that was what started the whole thing. You're very successful at designing these elaborate flower arrangements for events and brands, but you weren't making a ton of money doing so. How did you feel about this constant need of producing all the time and kind of being on this treadmill? And tell us a little bit about the Bloom and Plume coffee shop and how it actually helped your flower business. I think there is a very particular way to do flowers and make money at it. And I found that to be aesthetically challenging. And so I wanted to figure out, is there a way to make money and make it more dynamic and interesting? Fun fact, I did not figure that out. And I think that wanting to create something diverse constantly is as opposed to rinse and repeat, which is how you make money, 
is rinse and repeat. So always wanting to do something new, something custom, something different, and really leaning into the medium of flowers. It's like no two flowers are exactly the same. They all have their own unique idiosyncratic details that make them a little different, even in the same variety. And so I figured if I've built my brand on diversity and doing things differently, and I don't want to sell the same arrangement every single time, what could I sell or what could I do that has more of that, like, everybody wants consistency when it comes to this thing? And coffee made sense to me. And coffee is one of the smaller luxuries we afford ourselves, as opposed to like a flower arrangement that is just absurdly expensive for good reason. But like, it really is very unapproachable for most people. And so I was like, ah, if I make one or two arrangements to just place into the area, hundreds of people can see that. And then they can engage with a consistent coffee that we make the same every single time. And so from a business standpoint, that made more sense to me to bridge my creativity in the way that I want to vision the world and how capitalism actually works. So the Bloom and Bloom Cafe has a very unique feel. Right outside, there's that signature purple. Tell our listeners what kind of vibe and what kind of experience you wanted the cafe to embody. I wanted a sense of accessible luxury. I wanted there to be a specificity, but also ambiguity, like where it's really, really specific, but it is also universal. So you describe it as purple. It's actually periwinkle. It's not purple. It's not blue. It's like, it's hard to actually peg as a color. And that was very, very intentional. It's like, Royal, it's also more common because it's not a deep purple. Um, and purple and blue are like in the chakras, like your higher consciousness. So I just like wanted it to like be incredibly specific, but also like universal. I wanted it to feel like, again, you're being transported into a place that feels like you're seen like it's special. You are in the VIP section of Louis Vuitton or something, but it's a cup of coffee, you know? So like, because I know how I felt when I used to walk into Barney's, when I used to walk into places that just were curated with such magnificent design and beautiful things. And that's something that I found to be very powerful and important and something most people should have access to is aesthetics and them done really well. However, I also know that that is not something that we get a lot. And so I wanted people to be able to have that coming into a space that feels like just your down-home community space, but like you're actually getting more of an elevated, colorful, full experience. It's created by a Black, gay, gospel-loving man. And there are a lot of little specific details that are made for folks that understand and know that. But then there are also things that are just universal for everybody. 
So funny enough for a survey, I had to pick my favorite color and I wrote down periwinkle just because it sounded cool, but I'm very glad to hear the full definition and the full uh, explanation of the color from you, Maurice. I want to ask about another stream where it offers sustainability and accessibility, which is your merge. So tell us about that aspect of the business and how you feel about sometimes artists having a hard time creating merchandise and jumping past that mental hurdle. I think I'm in that as well. It's a mental and it's also a financial hurdle, right, to create merch. We sell our dad hats for 32 bucks. And if we buy 50 of them, it costs like 18 bucks a hat. If we buy 100 of them, it's like 16. If we buy 300 of them, it's like 14 or 11 bucks. But then that still is a ton more money. Like that's a huge investment to buy 300 hats that you have to move when you sell a couple of them a day. But like, is there a way to make that money turn a profit faster. In my opinion, when you see people out in the world wearing that hat and you see like five people that are like, oh, what's that hat about? Like, what is that? Like that spreads the word that gets more people engaged in your brand. So it is marketing. And it like, it's a softer ROI, but I do think that that spread is there. So you don't see like that 5,000 turn into 10 or $15,000 immediately. But over, you know, three or four years, when everybody's like, I always see that fist and flower everywhere. What is that? I always see that bloom and plume name. What is that? And, and you see it on the right person. That's the thing that grows that thing. It's like a gallery. They can't sell a painting to everyone because not everyone can afford a painting. But in the gift shop, I can buy a print of the painting. So I think in a sense, if someone is a big fan, they can't afford a flower arrangement, but they can afford a hat. So it's also a way to make it more accessible that they can support you in the way that they can. Yeah. And you know, the other way I think about this too is like for my flower part of the business, your clients are your boss. And anytime money is exchanged, there is a compromise happening. It's not purely your creativity. And so I feel like with merch and things like that, like it's what you want to say and how you want to say it. And people can decide if they want to participate or not in a more accessible way. So what I started to do where I was first testing this idea is I did a calendar project called Shades of Blackness. I was just in this moment where like everything I was doing was with somebody else's lens. Like, yes, it's the Bloom and Plume version of, but it was the Bloom and Plume version of this client's way of wanting something done. It's like, oh, we need an all-white version of this, but put the Bloom and Plume spin on it. Oh, we want to do a ton of color, but put the Bloom and Plume spin on it. And I was just like, great, love it, able to pay the bills, the whole nine. But then this is where it gets confusing as a creative that has a business because then you start to get resentful that like you're not able to just be you and be creative, but it's like you have a creative business. So your job is to create for other people. And so what I found was I needed to make sure that I had projects that I was doing for me that were meaningful to me that like I put out in the world that made sense to me. 
And then in combination of that, it was something that anybody could have access to as opposed to the one arrangement. And Shades of Blackness was like where we built these floral sets. It was around like my political views around like looking at Black as beautiful and like seeing more of more diversity in the market. And it was interesting because it took off in multiple ways. I wouldn't say the immediate ROI on selling out on all those calendars because they still were high end because I was producing such a low quantity. Um, And it was a very expensive endeavor, right? So I'm like spending like $20,000 to produce this calendar every other year. And then I probably make literally on that maybe $10,000, if that, five, I don't know, in sales. It's literally laughable how much money I make off of the actual product. But bigger brands or other companies will be like, oh, I saw your calendar. I like this idea. I love what you're doing. Could we do a version of this as an activation in the mall or at this for my company's party or whatever. And so selling that idea that was just purely my idea ended up making me a lot more money in the end because I created time to just create and put out what I wanted to see, if that makes sense. So I do think it is worth it and it's important for your sanity to like have things that are on just your own agenda, but also the possibilities that when people are able to see and understand your vision and your perspective, then you can sell that idea five times over and just tweak it a little bit. And then that's actually how you start to recoup the money. So in the end, I probably made, I don't know, dollars $200,000 off of that idea. I see the two tying in a bit with their effect, like the butterfly effect of the project and also the impact. And I'm very interested to also chat further about your financial journey. I'm chatting with Maurice Harris, the founder of Bloom and Plume. If you are enjoying our conversation, please follow or subscribe to Shopify Masters wherever you get your podcast and maybe leave us a review or feedback for the show. Thanks. So talk to us about the early days of how you actually funded the store initially. Really difficult process. This is like the conversation my brother and I are constantly having. I own my coffee shop with my little brother. And I say my little brother that way because it's the only thing I have over him because he's basically like my little big brother. He's my boss. So um, he's the financial side of the business and I'm more the creative side of the business. And our debate is around, for me as a creative, is it's brand awareness. We started ideating around this idea in 2014 and really trying to get serious about it. It didn't open until 2019. We had worked really hard. My brother had saved money from the time he was 17 to buy a house by the time we turned 30. He had this very long, elaborate goal, totally accomplished it and did it. Shout out to Moses. And I had been building my brand and my business for a while, and we were doing really, really well. And so the other thing Moses had me working on was getting my credit together and making sure all of that stuff was lined up because we wanted to go the SBA route of funding this business. And for those of us not from the States, SBA is actually the Small Business Administration. So we applied, um, we worked on our business plan, we worked on our credit, 
Like everything was just so ideal. We weren't going to be taking any revenue from the business. It was an expansion of my already existing business that had been around already for like seven or eight years at that point. We both had exceptional credit. We both like had money in the bank that we had saved so that we could like help to fund some of this. And we still got like 30 no's. Oh, we also had an under market rent, like way under market, like it's ridiculous. So we were like set up. We were just like, this is literally a recipe for success. Like give us the money. And we're like cute. We're like young. We're eager. You know, we're black. It's just like, hello. And so we got all these no's. And then my aunt, she does a lot of work with SBA loans, but more so on the property acquiring side of things. And so she couldn't really help us with that. But like, as we're doing our little thing, and we were at this event that was around bringing entrepreneurs together to help them with funding or putting their packages together, this financial guy was there and he was like, oh, you know, Hilda Kennedy? And I was like, yeah, that's my aunt. And they were like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And it was literally like, then the red carpet rolled out. And next thing we know, we got funding. And so it was just really kind of cool, but also disconcerting that the only reason we got this was because we knew someone. And I think that is the really disheartening thing around entrepreneurship, business, it really is all about relationships. It's all about who you know, how you know them. Doesn't matter about how talented, how smart, how whatever you are. If you don't know the right people or in the right place at the right time, like getting access to different things is really difficult. I want to thank you for being so open and honest about that because a lot of the times we don't talk about that enough. And especially for other founders who are going through the process of trying to get loans, it's kind of refreshing to hear this honesty of a lot of the times, despite how hard you work, relationships do matter. It was incredibly frustrating to do everything right based off of all of the things we read, best of all of the like seminars we would go to. Like we're just doing everything right and above and beyond on those things. And we're still not getting it? We were just like, what, what is happening here? This is actually crazy. And so I think for that reason, I like to be more transparent about it because I want people to really know what it's like and what you're trying to sign up for and why it's not working. It's not you. The system is not set up for people that don't already have money and don't already have access to succeed. For sure. So SBA, the Small Business Administration, you did go through and get a loan. But I think on the flip side of that, once you're operating a business, you understand that it's a matter of liquidity, balancing your books every month. And you do realize at a certain point in your business, you wanted to actually pay down the loan, which you did officially last year. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes. Tell us about the journey and how hard it was to actually work down that loan. <laughs> oh, that is like comedy. It's like, to be this dramatic, it felt like I was going to die. You know, like it was just that hard. 
And it was so stressful. Me and my brother were just at each other's necks because our runway was so short. There's this airport in Nepal that's like in the mountains. And it's like, it is literally the scariest looking thing on the planet. It's so short. And if you don't hit it just right, you're going to fall off of a cliff. And then if you're landing, if you don't stop just right, you're going to fall off of a cliff. And it just felt like that. It felt like at every turn, everything was about to fall apart. And thanks to my brother's, his detective eye, when it comes to money, we were able to sift through certain things, right? What is our cost? What is our margin? Where are we making money? What are we not selling? Where we have all of this extra labor and then it's like we end up still not having that many people in the store. Over COVID with George Floyd, that was a weird thing too because then there was this huge insurgence of people coming to the shop and shopping there. Like we went from serving like, you know, 20 people a day to serving like 150 people to 200 people a day, which then made us reevaluate our whole business plan. And then six months later to go back to serving 30 to 50 people a day. You know, it was just a lot of stuff. And so we were really looking at, okay, what in this model works and what doesn't work? And on top of that, in our analysis, we'd be like, you know what? We actually did pretty good this month if we didn't have this $4,000 loan payment. And so then it was just like, well, we got to get rid of the debt. And so every big job that I had, every time Moses got a bonus or something that was happening with him, we just like poured money into paying off this debt so that it could do its own thing. Otherwise, we were going to drown. And that wasn't an option for us because Moses's house was leveraged, my business was leveraged, and we would kind of like not have anything. And losing wasn't an option. So we just like kind of pivoted together every which way. I think partnership is the key to success. And we're able to balance off of each other, both of our strengths. I think what's interesting about the small business loan is the fact that you work very hard to get it, but there's also the flip side of actually having a loan and then you realizing, oh, wait, it's something that I also have to work on to pay back. What other financial awakenings or like awareness you've got through that process that you think other business owners should be aware of? When you're building out your business plan or what you're thinking, be very conservative with it. Like you probably have like a three or 4% contingency in your budget, higher or lower. It needs to be like 15 or 20 because there are literal things that are so outside of your control or your understanding that will affect that part of the business. If I'm thinking of a specific example of our journey, we found out that there weren't enough amps that were going into our location from an energy electrical standpoint uh, to run all of the equipment that we had. So we thought that we would be able to just upgrade the electricity for our space but DWP was not okay with that. And really quickly for our listeners outside of Los Angeles, DWP is the Department of Water and Power. And so we had to update the electricity for the whole building. And our landlord was not here for it. So we had to take on that cost ourselves. 
That was like an additional like twenty, thirty thousand dollars or something crazy. And it ended up being eleven months of delays. And so then when we finally did open, you know, after like the when those payments started to kick in, it really hurt the business because our on had been severely delayed. And so it put a lot of strain and pressure on the business to perform in a way that it just wasn't going to do because it was just starting. And I think it's also very interesting. You talk about pivoting the business and noticing different areas that you need to pay attention to or cut back on. One of the other pivots is also you leaning more into your personality and showcasing your floor arrangements for a bigger audience and tapping into that. So talk a little bit about that career shift for yourself as well. Oh, these questions crack me up. <laughs> um, you're like digging in there. So yeah, it has been an interesting shift for me because I make more money doing my job theoretically than actually doing my job. The cost to do someone's party, even at like a high-end level, right? Our coffee shop is finally making a little bit of money because... Moses and I do not take a salary. We do jobs outside of that. If that business had to take care of both of us, it would have closed in like the first six months. So with the flower business, it is just so, so, so labor heavy and so many logistics. And because it's a perishable product, it's not like you can spread that labor out if you're doing a wedding. No, you have a week where you're like, all hands on deck, you know, getting the flowers to look perfect on that day, right? And so that is what we're doing when we're doing a party. It's a hard thing to understand. So when I'm doing a party for $20,000 or something like that, like, you know, I'm making four $6,000. Like, it's not a crazy margin. I mean, I guess if I was really, really, really like on it, on it, on it, on it, on it and doing something super simple. Maybe I could make like $9,000, but like it ain't, that is not really that realistic. Where if I'm doing the post, I'm spending, you know, 10%, you know, on production as opposed to the other way around. And I'm not running around like a chicken with no head. I'm actually able to focus. I'm able to like step away, come back, like work on my terms. It just works a little better. And it's been more consistent work. And then for our more public-facing work, I've dialed in and spent a lot more energy on the coffee shop because I think it's worth it to have, whether it becomes this multi-million dollar company or not, I think what Moses and I are really interested in is creating more of a blueprint because we're in it right now, of how other folks can start to do that and adapt it and being honest and realistic about it. And I think my brother and I are doing it now so that we can better figure out how to help other folks so that they can do it themselves. I love that. One thing I did wanted to ask about leaning more into your personality and working with brands and media is that now that your personal identity is very much tied closer to the brand, how do you feel about that now? Because do you now think about strategies for your social media? Get out of my head. (laughs) 
get out of here. What are you doing to me right now? Oh, my God. I hate it, actually. Mm. I think we are in such a strange time where we think that we should have access to everybody's inner thoughts and how they do things. And we're in this time because everybody thinks that they can do everything, that you have to explain how you got there and how you did it and why you did it that way. You know, there's a constant critique of Beyonce that she doesn't let you in. And I'm like, she doesn't need to. She doesn't have to. Look at the work. The work is incredible. It is entertaining. It is doing all the things you've asked it to do. With that said... I know I'm literally about to contradict myself. So I hear myself and I know what I'm saying. I do love to perform. And that is a side of me that I really like and I enjoy. And I like being on and I like to be the center of attention in some ways. And so I have this complicated relationship with having to sell my dynamic personality and like my style and my vibes and all these things, as opposed to like, I'm actually just really good at making flower arrangements. I'm really good at creating an experience and a vibe. And you come into my coffee shop, it should speak for itself. As opposed to feeling like I have to tap dance and song and dance for everybody to get it. Well, I think that's the duality of Maurice. You should be allowed to loving to perform, but also you should be entitled to the privacy that you also seek. On that note, I do want to close off and ask, I guess it is a tough one. What advice do you have for creatives and artists who are having a hard time finding that balance of, I want to go into business, I want to find a way to actually make a living, but I also feel weird about monetizing a part of myself. So where do one reconcile and where do one find that balance? I always say, do what you got to do, make your money, make your bag, but also only do that if you have really strong clarity of those boundaries and what they are. My best friend who's no longer with us told me years ago, um, she was like, Maurice, you're so dynamic. You're so magnetic. But like, if you don't know how to turn that on and off or how to keep it for yourself when you need to, like, it's going to kill you. It's literally going to eat you up and spit you out. It really, really having something for yourself, you know, going back to when I did my Shades of Blackness project, that was a way for me to reclaim my time, reclaim myself for me and put creative things out there for the world. I think the biggest thing I can tell folks is to have something for you and to treat your creative job as your job. When money is exchanged, it is a job. And even though it's creative, do not be defined by those things. Be defined by the things that you want to put out into the world that you think are exciting. And let me tell you, the posts that I post that I just think are my most beautiful, most accomplished, most complicated arrangements are never the ones that get the most likes. It is always the basic, simple white peonies or like whatever that like people just go crazy for. I also can't be defined by that. That's also a part of my business. Really having a clear understanding of who you are allows you to navigate the nonsense. Well, 
Amazing. Very honest, very direct. I think it's important. <laughs> Treat some of the projects and realize as a job. Get a partnership if you can and like truly know who you are before you go into business. And those are very sound, direct advice. So thank you so much for being here, Maurice. It's my pleasure. That's Maurice Harris, founder of Bloom and Plume. And thank you for joining us on Shopify Masters. Our show is produced by Megan Coyle and Gogo Zoger. Our engineers are Matt Schwartz and Miku Betlam. Benjamin Gottlieb is our supervising producer. And I'm Shwang Estershan. And we will see you next time.